Welcome back to the next installment in our series on the Mass Explained and Compared. I am Brian McCall, the Editor-in-Chief of Catholic Family News, and I appreciate all those who have been watching this series so far. Uh, today we reach a critical juncture, the, the climax, the uh, essence of the Mass, the consecration. The consecration when both the sacrifice and the sacrament are made present. Now, before we get into looking at the text, we need to pause and talk about uh, what is going on and what the church has taught is happening at the consecration so that we can actually see it in the text and see it in the comparison. Because this is the point of most critical comparison between the old and new mass, because it is at the essence, the heart of the mass. We've already seen that the element of sacrifice has been made less integral because before we saw a sacrifice has three parts. This is the central part, the consecration, but there's an offering, a consecration, and a complete consumption of the, the victim. We see that the new mass just took away the offertory part and substituted meal blessings. But now at the consecration itself, we're going to see a, a radical ambiguity in the text about what's happening. So to see that, we have to actually understand the correct position. The first part deals with an ambiguity laden in the phrase that this is a memorial of the crucifixion or a re-presentation of the crucifixion. Those are phrases you will see in the traditional mass. This is a memorial. This is the representation. But those phrases are capable of a correct and a false understanding. And to illustrate that, I want to use an example so you can see the difference. Now, let's suppose, like myself, you were married many decades ago. You actually went to a church, were married, recited the vows, became married. Then on your anniversary, you want to remember or have a memorial of that. Well, there's two things you can do that are very different in what they are doing. Now, I want to be clear. This is not exactly the same as the Mass and the Consecration. It's an analogy. And like all analogies, it's a situation that has very many similarities, but is not identical. So there, there are differences, but there are many, many more similarities. So there's two different ways you can remember that. For example, sometimes on our anniversary, we've taken out a videotape and watched our wedding ceremony. That makes our wedding ceremony present again, but in, in a way of just seeing it again. It happened in the past. We're just looking at a record of it. Now, maybe you have some children. This, this actually never happened. Maybe you have some children who want to do something for your anniversary. So they have a little play and they reenact your wedding before you say, oh, watch, this is what happened. We're going to reenact it. And they, they say, this is what you did 20 or 30 years ago when you were married. That's one type of remembering memorial representation. But then there's another. And we did this once on our, our one of our wedding anniversaries. You go to church, you speak to the priest ahead of time, obviously, and you say, we would like to renew our wedding vows. So you go, you stand in front of the altar, and you once again renew your wedding vows, and you may receive a blessing from the priest. Now, this is different because you're not just saying solely, here's what we did. Let's remember what we did 20 years ago. You're doing it again. Now, again, here in a, in a different way, you're already married, so you're not changing that state, but you are presently saying, I commit myself again to these same vows. I'm not just remembering what I did 20 years ago. That's a very important difference. The difference is even greater when it comes to the mass, because you're not just saying, well, I'm going to do what I did before. You're actually going to make present again the doing that you did before in an eternal way. And again, this is the mystery of eternity, so it's very difficult for us to understand it completely, but it's analogous to the difference between watching a video of your wedding and renewing your vows. Likewise, maybe many of you have done the total consecration, completed the total consecration according to Saint Louis de Montfort, the Blessed Mother. So on a particular feast of Our Lady, maybe December 8th, 2012, you made the consecration. Now, on the anniversary of that, you could do two things. You could say, let me remember, I, I remember doing that. Let me look at some pictures of when I did that. Or you can renew your consecration, which many people do, recite it yet again in a present sense, right? Do it again. You're not saying, here's what I did. Or said, tell me a story of what you did in 2012. Here's what I did. This is what I said. Let me read you the prayer I said. As opposed to, let me do it 
again, let me presently say the prayer. Again, these are analogies, not perfect. The Mass is, is, is not exactly that, because it is a, a, a mystery, but it's an analogous difference. And what the Church has always taught is that what happens at the consecration is more analogous to the renewing your consecration, renewing your wedding vows, than to looking at old pictures or watching a video or even play acting. Here's what we did. Or reciting. Tell us what you did. Well, here's what we did. Here are the vows we recited. It's more like renewing them, doing them in the present than the, the latter. And that's what we mean by a representation, a memorial of it. It's not just remembering. It's doing it. And it's not doing it as a second time, but doing the same thing in eternity a second. You know, a, a, in a sense, we think of it as a second time, but the same sacrifice. Um, with one difference, and here's another analogy to understand the difference. This doesn't happen as often now. But perhaps you wanted to get married, but you can't physically. Well, you can get married by proxy. So you can have someone who goes and recites the vows at the wedding. Maybe you're, you're overseas, you're in a war, and you want to get married. So you give consent, you appoint a proxy, someone recites the vows for you in your place. You are married to the person if validly done by proxy. They're not married to them, but you are. They are merely representing you. But then let's say the, the danger passes, you come back and you never were there because it was done by proxy. So you want to renew those vows in person. So you do another renewal. Now it's you yourself doing it. This is a little bit like what the priest does. Again, it's only an analogy, but in reverse. So at the crucifixion, our Lord solely himself makes the sacrifice. At the mass, our Lord does it himself again, but through the ministry of an ordained priest who is capable of doing it. Again, it's still Christ acting, but in a, a different manner. That's why we say the Holy Sacrifice of Mass is the same priest, the same victim, but in a different manner. It's done unbloody and through the ministry of an ordained priest. Now, again, it has to be an ordained priest. If somebody showed up at a church and claimed to be my proxy, but they weren't validly, I'm not married, right? It has to actually be someone who has been designated in a legal way by me, Again, analogous to ordination. So that's the first point. What is going on is not a reenactment, is not a remembering, is not a play. Here's what happened 2,000 years ago. It's happening now in the present. Secondly, the act of consecration is performed wholly and solely by Christ. Christ is the one who acts, again, through the ministry of the priest, but he is the one that performs the sacrifice. It does not need anyone else. Again, he has chosen to do this through the ministry of an ordained priest, so he's necessary under the sacramental system that Christ established, but no one else is. In fact, the belief of everyone is irrelevant. If everyone else in the church disbelieves that the, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ is happening, there's a transcendent, say, I don't believe that, it has zero effect. In fact, even if the minister himself, the priest himself, dis doubts the faith, he says, I don't really believe this, and that as long as he intends to do what the church does, well, I don't really believe this work, but I'm going to do what the church says. The intention is enough, and even his disbelief, his lack of faith is not necessary. His faith in the Blessed Sacrament is not necessary. And there are examples of Eucharistic miracles where priests have this doubt, and Christ grants them a Eucharistic miracle, and they actually, the, 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 the appearance of bread turns to the appearance of flesh, and their faith is restored. But the fact that it actually, they could see it, meant the consecration occurred. So the belief of the people has no effect on the, on the consecration whatsoever and is unnecessary. Now, why am I saying this? Because the early Protestants, what I now call the conservative Protestants, because people moved on from that, but in the early generation of Protestants, in the beginning of Anglicanism, Lutheranism, they wanted a kind of halfway house, a hybrid, to, to have something like the Blessed Sacrament, but not a sacrifice by an ordained minister. And so what some of the early Protestants taught was that Christ was really present in the communion, but not in the way the Catholic Church said, but he was present in that so much as the faith of the recipients, the people who were there receiving communion. If they believed Christ was present, he was present for them. So it wasn't a real change that the priest, regardless of what you think or believe, made happen to the bread and wine. But if you went to communion, if you were there and you said, I believe that that is Christ, then for you, Christ is present, not in a really, truly, substantially way. But the way that if you 
are thinking about someone and you really have an intense thought about them, they are present in a certain way in your mind because you're thinking about them. You're praying for them, maybe. They're present to you in a certain way. But if you're not thinking about them, you're not, then they're not present in that same way. This is exactly what Protestantism, early Protestantism, again, some maintain this a little bit today, uh, some, some sects, but that that is what makes present, the belief of the recipients of Holy Communion. And, and that is what gets us to another phrase that we find in the traditional mass whose meaning was shifted by Protestants. So we saw this, I think, in one of the prayers last time, uh, the, the prayer of the Quam Oblationum. This will become for us, right, the bread of life. Now, what does the church mean by that in the traditional sense? It will become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, no matter what we believe, not just for us, but in itself. But what St. Paul told us, if we receive the communion, the, bread, it, the, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, with a proper disposition in a state of grace, believing what it is, discerning what we see, then it will be for us the bread of life. If it is not our belief, if we reject belief in the real presence, if we're in a state of mortal sin, as St. Paul tells us in the letter to the Corinthians, it becomes condemnation. So it's the same. The blessed sacrament is the same regardless of our state, our subjective disposition. But for if our subjective disposition is proper, it is for us the bread of life. If it is not, it is for us a condemnation. So what's important is our disposition doesn't affect the thing itself, but it affects its effect on us. It gives us life. It increases sanctifying grace. If we are properly disposed, if we're not, it is a sacrilege and condemns us to a further mortal sin by receiving it. But the, our belief doesn't affect what it is itself. It just determines its effect on us. The Protestant notion of will become for us the bread of life. So again, it will become the body and blood of the soul of Christ for everyone. It is what it is. But for those who receive it properly, for them, it is life rather than death. But for the Protestants, will become for us means for us who believe. If we believe it's the bread of life, if we believe it's Christ, it's Christ for us. If we don't believe it, we think that's just bread. That has nothing to do with Christ. It's just a piece of bread for us. Again, it's a properly understood phrase that is correct, understanding the subjective disposition. But Protestants shifted its meaning. And that's why in the Novus Ordo, even though they could use, the, and they do, the same phrase, it will become for us the bread of life. We see that in the traditional mass, same phrase. It means very different things because of the surrounding circumstances. Now, with all of that uh, in mind, let's turn to the consecration and look at the words and the actions of the priest and see how they reinforce right, all of these different things. Um, start with the words who the day before he suffered took bread into his holy and venerable hands and having lifted his eyes to heaven to thee god his almighty father giving thanks to thee blessed it makes the sign of the cross again the cross right before the moment of sacrifice as a remember remembrance of it and gave it to his disciples saying take ye all of the uh, take and ee all of this period it's important we'll talk about that period in a second this is called the consecration now what's important about that it's called the words of consecration or the consecration in the missal after the period the um text changes and we get a distinction in the missal and i'm going to show share you uh, with you my screen this is not the altar missile this is my hand missile but it imitates uh, what you will see in an altar missile uh, on the uh, very altar itself. So again, this is from a, a Kindle version uh, of the uh, missile, but it, it's the same thing in the priest's altar missile. We get uh, a period there. Here's the English translation. I'll go up to the uh, Latin. There's the qui pridier, right? That's the beginning of the prayer. Here's the Latin omnes, period. That's all of you need. We get it set off. Large, different font change. And again, the period, even though grammatically it sounds like this, it, it, it sounds like it's the same sentence, but the church is end. Why? Because up until now, we've had preparatory language. We are going to reenact this. Let me tell you, let me, let me recite what Christ did. So this part of the consecration is like reenacting in the sense of a play. act. I'm going to tell you, recite to you, tell you a story of what happened. Here's what Christ did. Let me tell you what happened at the Last Supper. It's in the third person. 
right? It's explaining it. But then the missile says, now the priest needs to stop. He's no longer telling you what happened in the past. He's now performing a present action. And that's why we get the change of the words, the font, uh, the language set off. These are the words of consecration. And they are set in the present first person. Hoc est enim corpus meum. This is my body. The essential words of consecration. And the, the, they're set off. Uh, in the text so that the priest remembers, okay, now I'm actually performing the the form of the sacrament. And every sacrament needs matter, form, and intention. The matter is what on which the form acts, here the bread. Okay. The form are the words that must be said as the church requires for the sacrament to be confected. So just like baptism, there's preliminaries. Where he says, do you wish to be baptized? Uh, Volo, I wish it. Then he turns to the form, and the form is set out separately. You must say these words. This is the form made distinct. Secondly, we've talked a little bit about the gestures of the priest. First of all, we say the sign of the cross right before. But then the priest bows down and rests his arms on the altar. Now, why does he do this? For several reasons. One, this is like the... Um, uh, what we said at the very beginning of the canon. At the very beginning of the canon, the Teiji tour, he rests his arms on the altar, he bends low. Why? It is in remembrance, it is an imitation of the posture of the apostles at the Last Supper. Remember, they were in quasi-kneeling from our perspective. They were reclined, to use the language of the gospel, at table. They were down close to the table right? because they're kneeling, they're, they're knees on the floor with their feet behind them, resting on the table with their arms on the table. This was the posture. I showed you that picture last time. Uh, they, they, uh, and as wife, the church, and particularly in the West, has always said at this point, you kneel. All of us kneel down. The priest stands at the altar because he's offering a sacrifice. Because remember, the, we have the combination, the coming together of those Old Testament sacrifices in the temple and the cenacle, the Last Supper becoming one. So the priest stands at the altar, but we kneel down in imitation of the way the apostles were at the Last Supper. At the moment of the consecration, he lowers himself to the altar, just like the Last Supper. Secondly, what does he do? He speaks the words of consecration into the matter. So he holds the host with his canonical fingers that we mentioned before in front of him, and he recites the words. He whispers them into the matter. What does this remind us of as well? the creation of man. God breathed into man. So he forms man out of the dust of the earth. He creates matter. He, he organizes the matter. And then he gives it a soul. He breathes the soul into it. Just like here, the priest breathes into the blessed sacrament, the, what becomes the blessed sacrament, the form. So it's, an, it's a uh, symbolic representation of the way creation occurred. The first form being given to man the form is spoken into the matter. And it's, again, a reminder, this is not just telling you what Christ did. By the changing of gestures, it is showing you that he is doing it presently, the priest, by leaning over, speaking into the bread that becomes the body of Christ once these words are spoken. Then what does he immediately do? He immediately genuflects. Why? As a sign to the people, the consecration has occurred. And just as St. Paul tells us, at the name of Christ, every knee must bend. This is not just the name of Christ. This is Christ himself. We also get, what do we have in the gospel about the coming of the Magi? The Magi entered into the house and immediately fell down and worshiped him. The very first thing they do about coming into the presence of God is they fall down and worship him. So what does the priest do? Now in his capacity as man, right? So he has been acting as altar Christus in saying the words of consecration, acting as Christ. But remember, he's also a man. And, and as soon as this happens, he falls down to adore him instantly to show us his belief. This has now become the body of Christ right now, not later, right now. The first thing I do is fall on my knees. Having adored, having genuflected to adore, he then elevates the host for the adoration of the faithful. He holds the host up for the people, people now to adore our Lord truly present, to show he is now here. Then he genuflects again to adore Christ again. Now, this is important because we're going to see this pattern of a double genuflection. Every time the blessed sacrament is revealed from the moment of the consecration forward, the priest genuflects before and after. So when he is going to uncover the chalice every time, we'll see as he genuflects, then when he 
places the, the cover back on, the pall back on, he genuflects again. Here, he genuflects again because he has just revealed Christ and he's placed him back on the corporal. He rests now on the corporal. We talked about that. The patent is hidden either under the subdeacon's humeral veil or under the, the, the corporal. He now genuflects again. So we get a double genuflection, two acts of adoration, and then in the middle, an adoration, a time for adoration of the people. To signify this, we get three sets of bells. Immediate bell, the consecration has occurred. Again, that first ringing of the bell tells us Christ is present. Second, usually done three times, symbol of the Trinity, three bells rung as the Blessed Sacrament is raised. As the Blessed Sacrament is raised, typically it's three bells, a set of three, representing now the Trinity is present. Then an another single bell when the priest genuflects the last time. Okay, now this consecration adoration is complete. Uh, let's take a quick look uh, at uh, this action from the Solemn High uh, Mass that we have uh, been watching. So again, we see the deacon now moving to the priest's right. Why? Because who is the deacon? The deacon, remember, is the assistant. He's the closest to the priest. And so he is able to assist the priest. He removes the paw from the chalice, we'll see. He helps the priest get ready. But then even he himself falls down at the words of consecration, you'll see in a moment. Reminder, the priest acts alone in persona Christi. And even the deacon who is so close to the priest that he can touch the chalice, he can help, he can help lift the chalice, He um, even he falls to his knees. There he is. He falls down. Now notice the priest is bowing over the altar, like I mentioned to you. He's saying the words of consecration into the host itself. There you can see it's speaking the words, beautiful camera angle, right to the host. He's just finished. As he stood up, he immediately falls down and adores the host in his hand. He then elevates the Blessed Sacrament for all to see. There's the three bells. And then the next genuflection. Now, mention the, the elevation. Uh, that elevation at that point was not in the original apostolic form of the Mass. It was added in later centuries in the, in the period of the Middle Ages. Uh, there always was an elevation, and that is what's now called the minor elevation that occurs at the end of the canon. The priest holds up, and we'll see that later, the host and the chalice. That goes back to apostolic times, but it occurs at the end of the canon. So what would happen originally is the priest would just adore the Blessed Sacrament, leave, leave it on the altar and continue. But as uh, devotion grew and the church wanted to foster devotion, people said, well, we want to see, we don't want to wait to see our Lord. He's present. Can we see him right away? And the church as a good mother responded to this desire by making that part of the mass. So although it's a later addition, it does have apostolic origin. There is an elevation. We'll see it occurring later. That is of uh, early times. But then a new one was added. New, it's a thousand years old, roughly for us. But a newer one was added at right after the moment of consecration because of the great desire and belief of the faithful to see our Lord yet again. So those are uh, the the traditional mass, uh, the consecration of the the bread. Now let's into the body of Christ. Now let's look at the consecration of the wine into the blood of Christ. And remember, this is where the sacrifice is made present because we have the double consecration is presenting to us the separation of Christ's body and blood. First the body, then the blood. Reminds us on the cross, his blood was completely, every drop of blood was drained. He gave everything. When the sword uh, excuse me, the lance pierced his heart of Longinus when he uh, pierced him, flew out blood and water, the last remaining blood of our Lord. And so the death of our Lord occurs by the separation of his body and his blood. Now, in eternity, because Christ died only once, Christ's body cannot be separated from his blood anymore because he died once, even though we are representing his sacrifice in a bloodless manner. So what does that mean? His blood does not actually leave his body. It is bloodless sacrifice this time in an unbloody manner, as the church teaches. So we present it as separated to give us that sacrifice, but his blood is not actually torn from his body. 
so where in the chalice we have the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, and in the host, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. However, they are done separately, as St. Thomas teaches us, to show us the presentation, to present the actually perform the sacrifice in an unbloody manner. So let us turn uh, again to the words of consecration for the uh, chalice. Similimodo is this prayer, in like manner. After he had supped, taking also into his holy and venerable hands this goodly chalice, again giving thanks to thee. He blessed, sign of the cross, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take ye and drink ye all of this, period. Again, another stop. And then, uh, again, I will show you uh, once again uh, from my uh, hand missile the a change as it represents like in the uh, altar missile itself that the priest looks at the clear demarcation of the words there broken out and often it doesn't show up in the way this is printed but you may see in a lot of um altar missiles that have especially larger ones these last two lines the eighth one dator will be up on the bottom line and actually the words if you look them Look at them physically make the shape of a chalice, right? Here would be the, the bowl of the chalice. You get the, the knob, the, and then it widens out. Again, if you add this to the bottom, you get a, a larger bottom line. And because this is a printed for uh, an ebook, it's not, not laid out the exact same way. But if you can imagine, as it is often in many altar missiles, again, some smaller ones, travel altar missiles for priests are not like this, but many, not required to be this way. But it gives a visual image of a chalice, which is a nice little beautiful touch. But then we get the actual set off words of consecration. Once again, the priest bows over and speaks them directly into the chalice, just like with the host. Hikestanum. Uh, again, we'll look at the translation for this is the chalice of my blood of the new and eternal testament the mystery of faith which shall be shed for you and for many unto the remission of sins and then as he, he, he completes the consecration as he genuflects he says silently the words as often as you shall do those things you shall do them in remembrance of me Again, clearly not parts of the words of consecration. We now return to what Christ said at the Last Supper. They're separated out, and he says them as genuflecting. Same actions, genuflection, elevation, genuflection. Let's now uh, return uh, to our uh, solemn high mass and look at, and just watch this. The deacon now comes back up. He removes the paw from the chalice. Again, as is so close to the priesthood, he can assist. You see, he takes it off. But then he again falls to his knees at the crucifixion. Here he's blessing. You can see him moving his arm, blessing the chalice with the sign of the cross. He's bowing over, speaking into, I hope they change the chant camera angle. I can't remember if they do. But it's like you saw with the host from that side angle, speaking directly into the chalice. Now, when you watch that, again, we, the, the purpose for this was to elevate the, the sacred species so the faithful could adore. But notice it has also another effect. It reminds us that this is an offering. Because in elevating, he's holding it up directly straight above his head to God, pointing directly towards the cross. Right? If, you, uh, if we just go back a few seconds to the uh, elevation... I'm going to pause it again there. Remember, we said, what did the priest do in the, in the in temple? They made the sign of the cross, just as he did with the element over the altar. And then they raised it up to God. He did raise it slightly at the offertory. But now, at the moment when the victim is present, again, notice, we have the practical side that people can see it. But it also visually, 
is showing him offering it to God. There is an image of God on the cross, and as if he is offering to Christ on the cross himself, him very self, the very victim. It gets that beautiful reminder of I'm not just showing this to you, but I'm also offering it directly to, to God. Now, let's uh, turn to our comparison. And here, again, are the words of consecration. Remember, here we talked about all the multiple Eucharistic prayers. The one thing they said they were going to do is have the words of consecration the same in each of them. But I do want you to notice how different they are from the traditional Mass. There are significant changes made. Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is, uh, sorry, first, before he was given up to death, the death he freely accepted, he took bread and gave you thanks. Notice not he took bread into his sacred hands, his holy hands. No. He took bread and gave you thanks. He broke the bread gave it to his disciples and said, right? Notice before he was given up to death, what's missing? He freely accepted, he took bread and gave you thanks. He broke the bread. Where's the blessing? That, that's cut out. Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body, which was given up for you. Now, notice, and again, I have a, a hand missile, but it imitates the, the missile that the priest uses at the altar. But I want to show you that the, the words on the page are presented differently. Again, people may say this seems like a, a minor point, but it is important because it, 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 it has a meaning. It's changed in that it has a meaning to have the words run together. So again, here, um, before he's going to take it, look, it all just, there's no separation of the words. And instead of the period, we get a colon. There's no break. Again, when the priest is saying, he said, and said, that's when he stops. And that's when he bends over. So we get a pause because he has to perform an action. And then the words. Grammatically in the missile, we get a full stop, not a colon, which you normally, if you're writing it for a paper for school, you'd put a colon there. But the church to remind us, but this just flows all together. They also call this not the prayers of consecration, but the institution uh, narrative. That's what it's called in the new mass, the institution narrative, which again, a narrative. Remember we talked about that difference? It's not doing it presently. It's a narrative of here's what's happened. The running through of the words, the stopping, not stopping to pause, the not changing your gesture, all contributes to thinking, oh, the priest is just telling us what Christ said. And when he says, this is my body, he's just saying what Christ said. He's not saying it himself presently. All of those things contribute to create that ambiguity. Uh, again, notice we get that reduction uh, of, uh, of those um, those gestures also now, what does he do? He immediately shows the, the, the uh, host to the people. Now, why is that a problem? Well, number one, if Christ is present, as we already said, his first act should be to fall to his knees to show us that model of how we're to uh, react. Um, and again, what does the... Um, it just it says uh, that he shows to the people and then reverences himself. Um, why is this important? Because the Protestant notion, remember, was the faith of the people is what makes Christ present. And so what they would do is the priest would show the bread to the people, and they would then say, okay, I believe. And by saying, I believe, that's what makes Christ present. And so by waiting to genuflect, it suggests, again, doesn't outright say, but suggests when is Christ present? Not after I've said the words, but only after I show the host to the people and they have interior belief Christ is now present. Oh, now he's here. Again, genuflecting first says he's here even before you see him. There's an ambiguity created, particularly in light of what Protestants teach, by showing first and genuflecting next. Again, it's an ambiguity. Why? Because of the clear teaching of Protestants. When Protestants say he's not present until the people see and believe, then if you wait to genuflect, that suggests, and or a Protestant seeing it could interpret, oh, that's what I believe. Once I see it and believe, then he's present. That's why the priest is genuflecting now. So it again, it creates this ambiguity. And why do it when everyone knows this is what some Protestants believe? When the other gestures we just looked at are unambiguous, Christ is always present, whether or not you see him. And in fact, for all those centuries before the elevation was added, he was always present there. So uh, let's then go uh, to the words uh, for the chalice. 
Uh, so again, we've 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 already um, uh, read the 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 first for the host. When the supper was ended, he took the cup. Notice it's not the chalice, the cup, right? Um, not in his holy and venerable hands. Those they're not even translated; they're just gone. Right? Those he just took the cup. It's just a cup. Uh, and this makes a lot more sense when you have a lot of Novus Ordos that don't actually have gold-plated chalices that have, you know, I want leather. One I saw when I was a kid, wood, all these things. It's a cup. It's not a chalice. It's a big difference. Again, the rules of the Church that have been thrown out since Vatican II is anything that touches the Blessed Sacrament must be of the highest, rarest quality, gold. Throughout history, has been the symbol of pure rare and and expensive and the best so the chalice is lined with gold the patent is gold so that anything that touches christ is gold um now you have a wooden chalice these things metal, you know silver it's all to say oh god's not that important we can just use this now again the church understood maybe someone can't have a solid gold chalice might be too expensive so even if the outside was gold colored or the inside had to be gold that touched Christ. And the outside had to be of a suitable character to show respect for Christ. So again, it couldn't be wood, couldn't be, it had to at least be metal to show something like close to gold, but the inside had to be gold. Okay, he took the cup. Again, he gave you thanks and praise. Gave the cup to his disciples and said, again, no blessing. Take this, all of you, and drink from it. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting te uh, testament. It will be shed for you and for all. We'll talk about that later. So that sins may be forgiven. Do this in memory of me. Remember that last part was done after the, the genuflection. Remember, we have the consecration. We fall down. Then he says, and it's not just, it's when I'll finish, you shall do this, you do them in remembrance of me. We get to sort of shorten, do this in remembrance of me. Then we get showing the chalice and the genuflection. Again, notice a lot of changes to these words. For the bread, they just added some words. For this is my body, they added, which will be given up for you. Right? Just an addition. Here we have subtractions. Um, this is the, the um, again, here. Um, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all. So the sins may be forgiven. The mysterium fidei, taken out. Then we also have, I mentioned the all, I'm sure you're aware of this controversy, for decades, pro multis, which in Latin means for many, was translated for all. Pope Benedict XVI put an end to that, said you have to translate it accurately. Why? Because it has theological significance. Christ says this sacrifice is made to make it possible for all to be saved, but only many will be saved because people will reject it. And that's why the Catechism of the Council of Trent says Christ specifically used the word for many and not for all to make this point. But in the Novus Ordo for decades, they were saying for many. The, they changed the words of Christ in the translations in every language. The Latin original of the Novus Ordo said promultis, but in every in vernacular translation, they always said for many, to, uh, excuse me, for all, to imply everybody's saved, even if you don't believe which is not what Christ said. And the Catechism of the Council of Trent said, this is falsifying the words of Christ. This is what he really said. And he said it for a reason. Now, Pope Benedict did change this. Many places have now changed the translation, but you can still find places hangers on, right? Who won't change, who stick to the original. Why? Because it's more ambiguous. It creates the idea everybody's saved. Having looked at the uh, words, let's turn and again, look in, at the gestures, which we've already touched on and talked about. Of At the time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion, he took bread and giving thanks broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take this all of you and eat of it for this is my body which will be given up for you. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice, and once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. 
Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but notice what we have here again. You see how the words, first of all, just all flow together. There's no pause. You don't get it. Okay, now this is the words of consecration because he's reading the way the missile presents it to him. Uh, secondly, notice instead of him speaking the words himself, he's holding it up for the people to see. That idea, again, false Protestant idea that you are somehow participating in making the sacrament present by your belief, as opposed to solely by the action of Christ and the minister of the priest. Uh, you get variation on this. Again, this priest seems to be, I, I think, a, you know, actually have some real devotion. I think he's trying. He has a flawed right given to him, but he, again, he seems very sincere in what he's doing. Um, he's trying to be reverent as best he can. That's why I chose to show this one rather than some crazier one. But you'll see in many Novus Ordos, they actually move around with the hosts. They, they wave it around. They move the chalice around because all of this idea is you're making Christ present. It's giving that impression. And likewise, you saw he holds it up and only then does he adore. And again, fortunately, this priest, he does seem to have some real belief. He does genuflect. Many priests just bow or do nothing. Um he just he does and that's good but um it's in the wrong place as we saw because it's implying that the people uh their uh their faith is what makes christ present for us so i think visually you can see all that again this priest is using the benedict the 16th required translations that are better uh notice the mysterium fidei is gone but um, it, it still does at least say for many, and we have the word chalice instead of cup. There were definitely some improvements in the translations, thanks to Benedict XVI. And again, this priest is using it. You won't find that everywhere. Right? There are many priests who don't like it. It's too conservative. So they they just, we're going to stick to the old-fashioned way, which now is ironic. The 1970 translation is now fashion. Then we get another in, uh, innovation that is unprecedented in the history of the, the Mass, the consecration now has happened. Christ is present. Our attention should be on him. And the Novus Ordo introduces this novelty of what they call the memorial acclamation. Um, that we, again, what is it reinforcing? The people need to be involved. This is not the most solemn moment, again, done in silence, as we saw. Everything falls silent, just like at the crucifixion. What did, did Our Lady say anything at the crucifixion? She fell silent. Did St. John? Silent. We hear nothing from them. In the presence of God, we fall silent. But here we have the noise, the priest speaking out loud rather than quietly. And now we're going to get this burst of music. right? Because again, at this very moment when we should be contemplating God's presence in our heart, we have to make some noise. We have to get involved because our presence, according to the Protestant error, is what makes this real. The mystery of faith. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again. Now, lots of problems with this one. Number one, here we do see those words, mystery of faith, that were in the words of consecration. Now, taken out of the words of consecration and said later. It's almost if you said, I. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Pour the water, say baptize, right? I get it. There's not as essential a word as baptize in the form. I admit that, right? But still, it's why would you take it out and remove it from the form? I'm not saying that it invalidates it. Again, I'm not a theologian. That, that theologian have discussed that point. Uh, is it essential to the form? But still, I'm just talking on the very practical level. For, for Why would you remove a word and put it outside the form? They Why did they do it? Because they want... We must proclaim the mystery of faith. We must show our faith to make Christ present is what they're giving a, na a nod to in the, in the Protestants. Now, this is another one where there's all these options. There's this whole list of um, uh, possible what they call acclamations um, that can be said uh, uh, with the memorial acclamation uh, that, that give all these different options. Right? All of them, though, have one problem that you see in this one, they all refer to until you come again, you will come again, right? Christ is I, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That's another version. And again, that's not false until you come again, you Christ will come again, but it's odd if you think about it. If Christ was just made present, he's here right now. Why would you say, oh, he'll come again? Why would you immediately refer to his second coming? It's almost like if your son arrives, he's been in the army for three years and he's on leave and he gets back home. And you say to everybody, hey, great news. In two more years, he's going to come again. 
wait, why are you celebrating that when he's here right now? Right? It's sort of odd to say, why are we talking about Christ's second coming when he has actually just been made present? He has just come into this church again right now, really, truly, substantially, body, blood, soul, and divinity. He's here now. Why are we talking about him coming later? Uh, it's almost like, hey, welcome home. You're going to come again later. It's strange. Now, why is it there? Again, because what are the Protestants that, that want to maintain something about this say? Well, Christ isn't really present now. He's for us present because we're thinking about him. But his real second coming, his real coming again in person will be later. That's they're, what they're affirming. That this is just a shadow or a prefiguring of his coming again. It's not a prefiguring like the Paschal Lamb was to the crucifixion. It's real. He is present now. And he will come again, but he is present right now. And all of these acclamations have this not, it's just, think about it, it's really odd. Right when Christ is present, you're talking about him coming another time, rather than focusing on his presence now. Secondly, this is, I think, the worst of the memorial acclamations. And again, this is how the, they can, they take words out of scripture, but then they, they kind of isolate them in a way that can then be misinterpreted by Protestants. Why would you immediately say when this is no longer bread, transubstantiation, the bread and wine cease to exist, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ exists. So what are the first words out of your mouth when using this particular memorial acclamation? When we eat this bread and drink this cup. Wait, it's not a bread. And we're not just drinking a cup. It's not just bread. It's the body. When we eat the body and blood of Christ, now, again, sometimes St. Paul, in an analogous metaphorical way, talks about Christ as the bread. Christ himself said, I am the bread of life. He didn't mean he was literally bread, wheat. He meant he was food, like bread is food. And so he did describe the bread sacrament, Christ, as, and St. Paul sometimes used the phrase, the bread of life, but always understood that it's not actual bread. It is the appearance of bread, but the substance of the body of Christ. And again, you can understand the phrase bread of life properly, but why at the moment when it's no longer bread, do you say, hey, so use a phrase that says when we eat this bread. It's almost like it's getting a little too Catholic here. Might be transubstantiation. Oh, it's just bread. Again, I'm not saying this priest believes that, but in the text itself, it creates that possibility. So a Protestant can say, okay, this is fine. I, I, this is not too offensive to me because they're, they're telling me it's just bread. And that's what I believe. And that's why some of the more, quote, conservative Protestant sects use the Novus Ordo for their communion service. I remember once I was at the shrine in Walsingham, and they were, it was an Anglican shrine. It's Anglican, where the, they took over the Catholic shrine back to the Reformation. There's a Catholic, actual Catholic shrine down the street, but it's not the original. This is the original spot of the medieval shrine. They have a church there. They're having their communion, Anglican communion service. I'm listening to it. So this sounds like the Paul VI Novus Ordo. I said, yeah, that's what they use here, Protestants. Why? I said, because they, they think its theology is identical with theirs, which again, remember, no transubstantiation. This is just bread. We make Christ present if they're conservative because we believe in him, but it's still bread. It's both bread and Christ. We're Catholic. It's no longer bread. It's only Christ. Again, they're happy with this acclamation. It reaffirms them. So in the context of Protestant belief, it can be misunderstood as disaffirming transubstantiation. And that is the problem with it. Again, aside from the practical point that at this very moment when Christ is present, what do we have? We have silence. We have adoration, and then the priest continues with the canon to get to the offering of the sacrifice. Again, that we'll see again the next the next part of the prayers. It's the reinforcing that this is offered as a sacrifice continues. We don't have any out. Uh, we don't have any sung at a sung mass, sung words until the Peromnia Cyclosicalorum, concluding the consecration. But we will get to that next time, because we had a lot to cover. This was a bit of a longer episode. I apologize. But this is the climax of the Mass, and we had to spend a lot of time on the consecration. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this in-depth look at the consecration, what it really means, the, the proper understanding of these terms, the representation, and uh, what it means uh, that the priest himself alone confects the sacrament. Again, I want to be clear. I am not saying that it is not possible for Christ to truly be present, that the, the, the consecration occur in terms of the sacrament being present. Uh, the position of Archbishop Lefebvre was always, it is possible. Why? Even in a prison where a priest didn't have the missile and he only had the very bare minimum that he remembered of Mass and he would do as much as he could, he could make the, the sacrament present. Uh, it's possible. But again, he, that was out of necessity. 
because he didn't have a missile. He was locked in a gulag. So the church has always said it, it is possible to make the sacrament present, but it is not the way it should be done. Right. Uh, and it also can be dangerous to the faith. Obviously not there because it's the only choice in a prison cell, but we're not in a prison cell right now. But this is a purposeful choice to eliminate all these things uh, from uh, the mass. Why do it out of no, no necessity? But my point is they're saying the sacrament could be made present with the bare minimum of the words of consecration. Um, so it's possible. Now it's possible. It's also invalid because priest is using a potato chip or a tortilla, sadly things you see, or his intention is formed against. Again, he doesn't, he can have lack of belief. We talked about that. But if he says, I don't want to perform what the church does. I want to just have a remembrance of Christ. I just want to recite what he said and not do it myself, form the opposite intention which if not, uh, maybe he could be given that opposite intention through a bad seminary formation. That's why Archbishop Lefebvre also said, although the text of the Novus Ordo could produce a valid sacrament, it, there are, the longer it is here, the more and more actual masses may be invalid from either using invalid matter, because priests aren't taught about that, or they're given a false, a wrong intention. You're just remembering what Christ did. You're not doing it again. And if they have that actual opposite intention as opposed to i'm doing it even though i don't think it's real different different difference uh you'll actually have more and more invalid masses which would archbishop have predicted in the 1970s would would happen um again a position's interest is that the new mass may if done properly by priest with the proper intention matter and form makes the sacrament present it may actually not have a complete sacrifice so again because it's both sacrifice and sacrament you may have a complete sacrament but an incomplete or non-integral sacrifice. And that's what we've been focusing on, those two elements. Again, thank you for your attention. If you've enjoyed this free video, please like it. Please subscribe to our YouTube podcast and Rumble channels. Uh, to, that helps promote this video. Liking it, commenting on it also helps promote the video. Thank you. Please help us by getting the word out so more people can watch these videos. Look forward to seeing you uh, next time when we will look at the parts of the canon that come right after the prayers of consecration. Thank you and God bless you.